The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. And as I mentioned just now, uh, we're looking this morning at the subject of prayer. And so let me invite you to open your copy of the scriptures uh, to Matthew chapter 6. Turn with me in the scriptures to Matthew chapter 6. We come to Matthew 6 at verse 5 and we're reading through verse 15, which includes the section on the Lord's Prayer. So, uh, we have been walking through our Lord's Sermon on the Mount over these various weeks and months. Uh, We come now to perhaps one of the most well-known sections of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Now, let me just acknowledge something to you up front, if it's okay. Uh, We are going to take this morning what we should think of as a view of the forest rather than the trees with this text, okay? The forest view rather than the trees, which means we're thinking about the big picture rather than individual trees. Now, a proper study of this text, a proper study of the Lord's Prayer, should include an unpacking of every single line of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, And we did that, actually, back in 2016. We did a 10-week Bible study, evening Bible study class, where we walked through every single phrase of the Lord's Prayer. We did that four years ago, so we're not going to do that this morning, although, Lord willing, we might come back to this at at some point to to unpack in detail the Lord's Prayer. But instead, instead of looking at each individual line of the Lord's Prayer, we want to consider how Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Prayer fits into the bigger picture of what He's doing in the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, and also this particular section in verses 5 through 15, because, of course, the Lord's Prayer has an introduction in verses 5 through 8, that gives the context for why he teaches about the Lord's Prayer. And so we want to see that in the big picture rather than just focusing on the individual aspects of the Lord's Prayer. So, all that to say, all that to say, Jesus is concerned about how we understand prayer. How we understand prayer. And I am concerned about it as well, and I hope you are concerned about it as well, that we think rightly about prayer. So we're going to be interacting with that this morning. So uh, before we read God's Word, let us pray and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures that we might uh, hear them in the Spirit. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we bow before You in Your presence, thankful that You are the eternal God, the everlasting God, who has revealed Yourself in creation. And yet, Lord, we can look to the sky and to the land, and by that we only know that you exist. We know that there is a God, a Creator. Lord, we need the Bible, your special revelation, to tell us who you are, what you are like, what you require from us, these people that you have created. And so, Lord, as we come to the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit has given to us by inspiration, we pray that that same Spirit might rest upon our minds to illuminate our understanding, might rest upon our hearts to prepare our hearts to receive the Scriptures, and Lord, might rest upon our very lives to transform us into genuine and sincere disciples of Jesus. And so, Lord, bless the reading, hearing, and proclamation of Your Word this morning, we ask. In the strong name of Jesus, our King, amen. Amen. And now hear the Word of God from Matthew 6 beginning at verse 5, the Lord's Prayer. It says the Word of God. 
And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever and ever. So may He write His eternal truth on our hearts today and keep your Bible open there in Matthew 6. Now, what Jesus is doing in this section is that He is addressing the religious practices of the Pharisees, those people who were the professionally religious class in the first century. And he is contrasting their well-known and boastful, arrogant spiritual practices with the genuine spiritual practices of citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He is contrasting constantly in this chapter. And the primary distinction that he is making as he makes this contrast is the distinction of the sincerity of our hearts as we engage in spiritual practices. He distinguishes the hypocritical spiritual practices of the Pharisees with the sincere, heartfelt, committed spiritual practices of His disciples. And those practices that He is focusing on, that He calls hypocritical in the sense of the Pharisees and sincere in the essence of His disciples, are giving, praying, fasting. You see, that's how chapter 6 breaks down. Last week we saw the issue of generosity and giving. Now we come to prayer. But then at verse 16 through 18, he's focusing on fasting because giving, praying, fasting were the essential pillars of spiritual discipline in Judaism and during the time of the first century when Jesus is interacting with this notion of what does it mean to be a sincere believer? What does it mean to practice my faith with sincerity? And the focus that Jesus makes on the sincere practice of my spiritual disciplines is this. How does my giving, praying, fasting relate to the Heavenly Father? That's the focus. Jesus says there are people in the world and they're going about their spiritual lives, but how do those spiritual lives relate to the Heavenly Father? He is saying the Pharisees in their hypocrisy, they don't know the Father. But my disciples who go about their spiritual practices do so chiefly because they know the Father. And it shapes the way they live their lives. Now, you know that this is a point of emphasis because 
Six times in the text that we read just now, Jesus makes reference to the Father. Look at them. Just kind of make the word Father jump out to you in the text. It's twice in verse 6. It's in verse 8, verse 9, verse 14, verse 15. Our Father, your Father, your Heavenly Father. See the word Father jump off the page of the Scriptures and note that Jesus is saying, I want you to think about your spiritual life as it relates to your Heavenly Father, and in so doing, let's distinguish that there's two kinds of spiritual practices. There's hypocritical spiritual practices and sincere spiritual practices. And Jesus says, let's talk about prayer. Let's think about prayer as it relates to the Heavenly Father. And Jesus is going to say in this text to us, look, there are two ways to pray. There are two ways to pray. One way to pray is that which reflects being a spiritual orphan. A spiritual orphan and not knowing your Heavenly Father. He's going to say, this is the way of the Pharisees. And there is another way to pray There is a way to pray that recognizes that I am a child of God. A child of the Heavenly Father. So the distinguishing mark of sincerity here relates to how well do I know the Heavenly Father. Two ways to pray. One of a spiritual orphan and one of a child of God. So first let's look at this idea of spiritually orphaned praying. Notice what Jesus says in Verse 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus is talking about the Pharisees, the Pharisees whom he calls hypocrites. And in other places in the gospel accounts, Jesus calls uh, these people whitewashed tombs. John the Baptist called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. The Pharisees were a leech on the spiritual vitality of first century Israel. And Jesus is calling his people away from their practices. And he's saying about prayer, don't be like them because they love, they are thirsty for the approval of men. The approval of humanity. In their prayer, they are motivated by worldly acclamation. How so? Jesus says, first of all, notice where they go to pray. They desire to pray, Jesus says, in the synagogues and on the street corners. Now, those places inherently aren't wrong to pray. In fact, that was the primary places to pray in the first century, especially for corporate prayer. But they are doing so with the motivation to maximize their exposure to be seen by other people. They want to be seen by as much of an audience as possible. Why? Jesus says, because they want to be applauded. They want to be acclaimed. They want to be known for being spiritual people. They desire to be applauded for their piety. They want people to say, wow, look how spiritual he is. Look how spiritual she is and be impressed. They crave, they thirst for acclamation in the eyes of other people. And Jesus says they do so because they don't know their heavenly father. And they aren't at peace with their father. And because they're not at peace with their father, what they want is acceptance from other people. The primary thing they love is other people's praise. Because they don't know what it means to be accepted in God's sight. They crave acceptance from others because they're insecure. 
They want worldly affirmation, and Jesus says at the end of verse 5, that's all they're going to get. They have what they wanted. They have the reward in full. Now, their prayers, we could say, they don't make it past the ceiling with darkened spiritual hearts that don't know the Father. We could say they are praying in unbelief. Contrast that, Jesus says, to the prayer in secret in verse 6. The prayer that is sincere in the heart, that is not done for show, that is not done so that other people see me as spiritual, but because I need communion with my Heavenly Father. He is talking about a distinguishing mark of spiritual hypocrisy is praying for the audience of people rather than the audience, the sole audience of God Himself. That's one mark of this type of spiritually orphaned praying. But another one, another distinguishing mark of this is that prayers are prayed in the name of manipulation. Manipulative. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. He's, he's describing what would have been known as spiritually pagan practices among the Gentiles at this time. They had a superstitious view of prayer that we might associate more with like an Eastern mysticism today. Some kind of Eastern mantra that if I simply repeat a word over and over and over again, it will put me into some sort of trance. And this type of transient prayer state is what I must do to bend God's ear. And the more I repeat the phrase, the more I repeat the word, the more God is likely to hear me, almost to the extent of promoting the idea of a loss of consciousness. Be lost in the repetition of this phrase. Uh, what this looks like today, actually, is uh, people out there saying, what you should pray is just Jesus, 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 it just... I think this is addressing that. We're not looking to alter our conscious state of reality in any sense whatsoever. But the reason why Jesus is pointing this out is because this type of manipulative way of saying, if I do this, God is more likely to hear me. He's more likely to give me what I want, so I'll just keep banging on the door in this way of manipulative prayer. Uh, this is seen especially in the Old Testaments as the people who worshipped the false god Baal just cried out the name of Baal over and over and over and over for hours. It's not the pattern of the people of God. Listen to what the reformer John Calvin said about this notion. He said, We should not think that we have the ability to demand something from God by beating upon His ears with our garrulous flow of talk. That means excessive talking. As if He could be persuaded as men are. Meaning we're not negotiating with God in our praying. We're not trying to manipulate God into our perspective by repeating ourselves or giving ourselves over to, to a type of negotiations with Him in this sense. Jesus says, that's not prayer. Prayer is spiritual fellowship and communion with God for conversation. It's not a mantra. It's not something to alter the state of consciousness to manipulate God. And Jesus is pointing out, this is the way of the hypocrites who pray this way because they don't understand their Heavenly Father. Who don't understand that He is the one that receives prayer. That He is the one that we should approach 
graciously, with humility, not to manipulate. Jesus says if the Pharisees knew this, they wouldn't do this. But because they don't understand, that's why they do this. Which is why he's saying, don't be like that. Don't pray like a spiritual orphan. He says instead, pray like this. Contrasting spiritually orphan prayer with the mindset of the person who knows that they have a Father in heaven. This is the prayer of the child of God. So, what does it look like? Jesus says, it looks like you beginning with the acknowledgement that you have a Father in heaven who hears you, who cares for you, who is concerned with the affairs of your life and interested in you. Jesus says, you have a heavenly Father. That's why he says in verse 9, pray then like this. Like this. And then he launches into what we know as the Lord's Prayer. Now, you might be interested to know that the text of the Lord's Prayer primarily comes from here in Matthew 6, but it also comes from Luke chapter 11. But Matthew 6 is more of the traditional text that we think of when we think about the Lord's Prayer. And I want you to notice how the Lord's Prayer is structured. It's helpful that in our Bibles it's um, has different pagination in terms of a new line to kind of separate out how this prayer is structured. I want you to notice that in the Lord's Prayer, there is first an invocation of verse 9. A calling upon God. How is God to be addressed? Jesus is teaching us. Not as some distant, far-off cosmic being who doesn't know you, who doesn't care about you. But the eternal God is instead to be addressed in this way. Our Father. There's a, there's a world of significance just in that. I hope you understand that. Our Father. This is how God is to be addressed. It's the invocation of the prayer. It begins, Our Father, in verse 9. And then what you have flowing out of the invocation, flowing out of who it is that we address, are six petitions or six requests, six asks. And they are in two categories. The first category of petitions focuses on the kingdom of God. Because isn't that what Jesus is consummately interested in as he comes teaching about the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus says when you pray, your first petitions should be concerned with matters of the kingdom. Verse 9, the hallowing of God's name. The honoring of God's name. The reverence of God's name. The worship of God's name. That's the first petition. The second petition in verse 10. The coming of the kingdom of God. Lord, let your kingdom come. The third petition still in verse 10 is the doing of the will of God. So notice how the first three petitions are all focused in generality on the kingdom of God. We don't get to matters of our life before we consider the ways of God's kingdom. The first three petitions, the hallowing of God's name, the coming of His kingdom, the doing of His will. That should be the concern of our praying. But then, Jesus says, there are aspects about your life living in this kingdom that you need to be concerned with. 
because prayer is a very personal thing. Listen again to what John Calvin has to say about this idea of personal petitions. He says this, Christ urges us to seek the Father in our every need as children want to take refuge in the protection of their parents whenever they are troubled with any anxiety. Do you have concerns in your life? Are you anxious? Are you fearful? Do you have things that weigh upon you? We'll sing together in just a little bit. Take it to the Lord in prayer, but Jesus says it first. Here are the things that you are concerned about. The fourth petition, verse 11, your needs, your daily bread. Not just food, but things general to your life that you need. Verse 12, the fifth petition, forgive us our debts. And the sixth petition, verse 13, lead us not into temptation. Now you may notice that the fifth petition has additional detail to it. Isn't that interesting? As Jesus goes on to say in verses 14 and 15 about if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if not, then not. Why do you think Jesus is giving extra emphasis to this fifth petition? I think it has something to do with the fact that it is particularly on the issue of forgiveness that measures our grasp on the good news of the gospel, isn't it? That, that your and my willingness to extend forgiveness to other people measures the extent to which we understand that we have been forgiven. And if we understand that we have been forgiven an infinite spiritual debt against a holy God, then it is increasingly possible to develop in my heart a spirit of forgiveness that forgives not because the other person deserves it, not because they have done something to earn it, but because I have been forgiven in Christ. Are you challenged week by week as you come to the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer? Help me to forgive others as I have been forgiven so that we are more concerned with our sins than against other people's sins against us. That our sins against the Father are more burdensome to us than the sins that other people commit against us. We are more quick to forgive when that is true, which is why Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. An invocation, six petitions, the first half about God's kingdom and then about our living in that kingdom. Do you notice something though? Even as you read the text, you're likely to kind of go into the, the ending of the Lord's Prayer, right? And you say, where's the ending? Where's the end of it, right? Aren't we supposed to pray, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory? Where's that? It's not in the text. It's not in Luke 11 either. It is actually in 1 Chronicles 29, 11. The citation is biblical in and of itself, but it doesn't come from these particular teachings of the Lord's Prayer. But the closing of the Lord's Prayer was a part of the liturgical tradition of the first century church. When they prayed, they concluded in that way, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It has been the practice of the church throughout the ages. No, Jesus doesn't specifically say it here. Nevertheless, it's a true statement, isn't it? To pray to our Heavenly Father and say, Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory 
forever. And what are we doing when we say that? We are saying, all of these things, Lord, the hallowing of your name, the coming of your kingdom, the doing of your will, the reception of my daily bread, the forgiveness of others, and my temptation, all these things are in your hands. Yours is the power and the glory forever. I commit them to you. Jesus says, this is what it looks like to pray. These are the things to be concerned about when we pray. Not that other stuff. Not that manipulative, showy hypocrisy. This is sincere prayer. So then, I want to just be very practical here. Because I think we need encouragement in this. I do. And I know you do too. Do you notice how Jesus says three times, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7. 5, 6, and 7 all start the same way, don't they? When you pray. See, Jesus assumes that prayer is a part of the rhythm of the spiritual life of the Christian believer. But I don't know a single Christian who would say, I pray absolutely as much as I think I should. I am totally content with praying. The amount of praying that I do and the kind of praying that I'm totally content. I don't know a single Christian who would say that. Do you? I don't know if you're totally content with your prayers. I'm not. Which is why we need to consider what this means in practice and what Jesus would have us to do as we are invited into the sincerity of his kingdom. And, you know, some people say, well, I'm not a good prayer. I'm not good at it. But can you imagine... Can you imagine the Father in heaven saying to you, you know, I don't like it when you talk to me. I don't like it. No, right? Our earthly fathers, our earthly parents delight to receive the concerns of their children, don't they? I mean, when we hear our children cry from down the hall, we want to go to them. We want to care for them. What do you need? Right now, I need to flip him over, right? Kenzie needs to flip him over because <laughs> he rolls on one side and he can't get to the other side. That's easy to fix. My spiritual needs, your spiritual needs are, are more than just flipping the baby over right now. Nevertheless, your father loves to receive your need. And so the only type of good praying that there is is the prayers that come in sincerity. The father delights in your coming to him. The only thing that makes your prayer good is that they are prayed at all. Don't be discouraged. Don't be concerned with the quality of your prayer. It doesn't matter. But Jesus is telling us, pray, pray, pray. And Puritan Richard Baxter said this, very simple, always remembered it. He said this, by prayer we learn to pray. You say, I'm not very good at prayer. Baxter says, by prayer we learn to pray. We learn to pray by praying, which is the ancient way of saying, in a modern sense, ain't nothing to it but to do it, right? Do it. Pray. When you're not sure how to pray, when you're not sure what to pray, pray anyway. And we need help. And this, friends, is where the Lord's Prayer can be especially helpful to us because, did you know, uh, our confession teaches us that the Lord's Prayer is not, first of all, a prayer just to be repeated liturgically. That is not the first purpose of the Lord's Prayer. The first purpose of the Lord's Prayer is not for us to repeat it verbatim in the, in the service. It's not wrong. 
But the first purpose is to be a model of all praying. An example of all of the kind of praying that we could possibly do. And then only secondly, to be used as a a prayer itself. A liturgical prayer, uh, verbatim prayer. And so if that means that Jesus is first of all giving us a model example of what praying might look like when we pray, then we can use the Lord's Prayer to help us pray. Maybe like this. Consider this. You're not much for discipline. We need discipline. We need to learn to pray. You can take one of the six petitions for the other six days of the week and focus on just that. Right? Six petitions. Monday through Saturday, you can take one petition and focus on on just that. Concentrate on it. Maybe you spend 60 seconds. Maybe you spend two minutes. Whatever. But maybe make that your focus of prayer for that day. And as you move through the week, you move through the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. As Jesus teaches, these are the kinds of things that we pray about. And then when you come to Sunday, you get to exclaim that you have a Father in heaven and He receives all the glory and the power. And then you recycle and repeat. Maybe that's helpful to you. Maybe it's not at all. But Jesus is encouraging us, pray then like this. I think a, a final word of encouragement on this, the idea of prayer itself, recognizing that all of us need help to grow in prayer, is remembering that last aspect of our affirmation of faith from the Heidelberg Catechism. Look back in your bulletin to that third point of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is the most helpful thing for you to remember when you pray? The Catechism says, that God hears you when you pray. That God hears you when you pray. And in fact, He promises to do so. Nobody likes to speak and not be listened to. And when you pray, the Heavenly Father hears you. And Jesus is teaching us, by this we demonstrate that we are the children of God. As we engage in our spiritual practices, in this instance, prayer We're not concerned with receiving applause and acclamation from the world. We don't want to be seen as the holiest person. We're not doing it for an audience of other people other than our Heavenly Father who hears you, who cares for you, who loves you, and who longs to meet your needs in Christ according to His will. People of God, through Jesus Christ, you are not spiritually orphaned. You are the children of God. Jesus says, Pray like it. Pray like it. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we rejoice in your goodness and your grace towards us that you have given us your Son that we might learn of you, learn to follow Christ. We ask, Lord, to help us to pray, for we need to pray. And by that, grow in our communion with you, our Heavenly Father. Lord, bless that in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.